everybody. What's up? It's Tommy coming to you on this beautiful July 12th morning. We never timestamp these things, but today I am just because uh, I woke up and it is my birthday. And I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to be here and to be alive and to be in this community. I'm grateful to be able to have these conversations and sort of do this public outworking of where I'm at in life and what I'm wrestling with and struggling with. And even though I'm not a part of the conversation that you're about to hear, I just wanted to prep the conversation with that. This is a beautiful conversation uh, between Becca and Olivia and then our new friend, Gigi Kanyazi. It starts out with a few technical difficulties, but there's some sort of synchronicity, some sort of purpose to these technical difficulties, so we left them in for this episode. But I hope you will sit with what I feel like is the magic that happens throughout this conversation the heart and the love and the care that came through in this conversation on my birthday I like to sit in gratitude um, and just think about this gift of life that I have this gift of walking in life and, and my path of walking in this spirit of service but also just as important as the spirit of service is, the spirit of receiving is also. And so I was happy to receive these words. And I hope that you will receive them with an open heart and that it will open up more questions, more curiosity, and bring us closer together in this messy and beautiful thing we call life. All right. I'm going to leave y'all alone now. Enjoy the magic. Love you all. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change that. Yes. yes. What are we doing? Uh, we leave our F-bombs in and... Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speak, that I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Some narratives. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is um yeah. and i feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh words fail wow. oh my goodness i have tears oh y'all are killing it unfiltered i feel like that's gotta sound strange permission to be 
Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome to Permission to Be. We are so, y'all, I, I don't know what's going to happen tonight because there's so much story here with our guest, Gigi Cagnesi. We are excited to have her with us and we'll tell you a little bit what's happened pre-podcast that you all have not heard yet. But Gigi, thank you for joining us tonight. It is such a privilege and an honor to be among you, my sisters. <laughs> Woo! So real quick, uh, will you tell the audience what what do you do, air quotes? Like, or what? No way. <laughs> you lost her again. This is so wild. Okay. That's just, this is just wild. You Can you still hear me? This is really wild. Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. Okay. So I guess we need to go. Do you think it might have anything to do with my computer? Mm-mm. If it was fine when, before I came? Mm-mm. Well, I think it has to do with you. No. <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. <laughs> Not your computer. I think it has to do with <laughs> I showed up and the thing just scrambled. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just, you know, I, I think, I think, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't like to, I'm not one of those people who like wants to make, you know, everything is a demon or everything, but you know, there are times when there's just undeniable disruption going on and okay. Yes. Hold on. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I'm observant of, patterns and so there have just been times when it's just clear something is going on and this is one of those times when something is going on (laughs) (laughs) i just wrote in the chat for y'all that might be listening to this white jesus is interrupting (laughs) You see what Becca said? He's scared he lost all of his people. Well, that was crazy. Um, whew, but yeah. Mm. You got to catch your breath. <laughs> no, it's just, um, it's been a long time. That, that side of, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. We are recording. recording. Just usher Brown Jesus back into the room. Right? Come on, Brown Jesus. <laughs> Just go make white Jesus go sit in the corner with his fragility. Let's right? Go. Let's go. Deuces. Deuces. <laughs> oh. All right, y'all. Well, welcome to permission well actually i could use it from the other recording we'll, we'll use that let's just um so y'all i'm just gonna be real honest we're just gonna say what happened so um there is some type of spiritualness going on um whether you believe in god jesus uh we specifically um i think would say we uh we don't how do i want to say this um, we're ta- we're talking about uh, brown Jesus. We're not talking about white Jesus. Um, the Jesus, um, he was a political activist. 
who fought for the marginalized, who was a um, who was politically executed. And there's something going on, y'all, because uh, we have had technical issues. Like, I I don't know that we've had technical issues this bad in 50 episodes. So we're just going to lay that out. And we're just going to be honest. I don't know where the conversation is going to go tonight. We're I'm excited. Um, yeah. So, Gigi, I think we were, uh, you're starting to share a little bit about who you were and who you are and what you do. What you do. And y'all, literally, audience, the other program we use cut out at least a dozen times. I, it's just wild. So, Gigi, please share. Yeah. Um, if it's okay, actually, you just raised something about the the spiritual dynamics happening right now. Um, can I speak to that for a minute? Please, please. So, as someone who lived in Soweto, South Africa for 10 years, um, and has spent considerable time around the world elsewhere, um, Brazil and different places in, in Central and South America. Um, let me put it to you this way. I once heard someone say, um, demons in America wear tuxedos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the context that I put that in now, post living a decade in the motherland, is that in mainstream Western Christianity, um, we tend to be, many of us tend to be very wary um, to recognize a lot of these spiritual dynamics, um, whereas in most other places in the world, two-thirds world context, um, it's just understood. There there is not question around it. Um, And the stories that I can tell you from both spending time in Brazil, which which is also my heritage, um, but in, in South Africa, I mean, one, one example, I remember having a meeting myself and my colleague meeting with a woman in our, um, that was a part of our church that we were leading um, in Soweto. And um, the dynamics around the conversation were very challenging. And um, I won't go into detail, but, but there was definitely um, some spiritual dynamics happening. And I promise you, in the middle of the conversation, we were sitting at a large round glass table. The glass was about an inch thick and it was covered in plates of food and dishes of food. And at one point in the conversation, when it it got quite tense, um, out of nowhere, this thick, sturdy, 30 year old, thick glass table shattered out of nowhere. From the center all the way out, it collapsed. It dumped all the food on the floor. My Bible was sitting open right next to me. Um, And I mean, just the sound of the cracking of the glass, it literally sounded like thunder. Wow. Wow. So things like that happen that um, are so undeniably connected to what is happening in the spiritual realm. Um, And yet in Western Christianity, um, we have inherited such a, um, we've inherited a faith that is so embedded with white supremacist ideology that yes. um, anything that doesn't look 
like we can control it, we can name it, we can label it is rejected. Yes. So because the spiritual realm is something that um, is outside of that, we are taught to be suspicious and we're taught that only reason and logic are acceptable in Christianity. Um, and yet that's not what we see in scripture. And the two thirds world is in many ways so much closer to the biblical experience than we are. And yet what we do is we judge and we look down mm. on them. Mm -hmm. You just preached a whole little sermon right there. I have not been in touch with that side of me since deconstructing 12 years ago. Yeah. And that is, uh, our audience, we literally were talking and Gigi was praying. And this is not a space that I have been in for a while. And as she's praying, my computer is literally, my, the program on my computer, which we have used the same program for our, all three seasons, is going, she's saying Jesus, and it's going disconnect, reconnect on Jesus, disconnect, reconnect. And it, I've never, it did that half a dozen times. So, uh, I'm sitting in awe. You know, that's that's beautifully said, actually, that you're sitting in awe. Because I I just wonder if our denial of how dark the darkness can be also strips God of how glorious and powerful he is as well. Where is your heart right now, Gigi? In this time, this space, not even just today, but. Mm. My heart right now. is so longing to see the shalom of God in the earth, to see the, the flourishing of humankind and creation the way we were designed to, um, which, also, which also means that living in shalom means that all of us are walking out our capacity and our calling to exercise dominion, which is what Genesis 1 says, which is essentially agency. It's our ability to influence. It's our ability to steward. And when we talk about a society that is so deeply built on and embedded with hierarchy, 
the further you go down the hierarchy, the less those communities are able to walk in their dominion, their God-given capacity and calling to exercise dominion in the earth. And that is what I'm longing to see. to um you know i just feel like we're just like having a whole spiritual experience here <laughs> but um we still need to uh tell our listeners who you are what you do you know we've just like we're, we're off on our own little um our own little tangent here but let's just go back to the beginning for a minute and let you formally in introduce yourself <laughs> we dove into the deep end all right um my friends, my name is Gigi Kanyezi, and um, what I do, more or less, or, or I might reframe that as kind of who I am, it's, my, it's, it's the mission that I live for, birthed really from who I am. Um, I am the founder and director of an organization called Jesus and Justice, and really the heart and soul of Jesus and Justice is community. It's community. It's that is the heart and soul before anything else. It is community. It is genuine, authentic, organic relationships among people who love Jesus and who want to center justice. And we're all at different places in learning what that can look like. Um, but we're on the journey together as a community. Um, and so within that, within that community, um, the heart and soul being community and genuine relationships, authentic, safe space relationships. Um, I've basically taken my 25 adult years of, of doing the work of racial healing and racial justice, and I kind of compiled what I feel like in those two and a half decades are the most important, most significant, most pivotal parts um, and I've put them together to create um, a 10-week course, which is the entry point into the community. So we're, Jesus and Justice is not about a course. It's about a community. But the entryway into the community is by taking the course so that we all have at least a common foundation mm -hmm. that yeah. we get in the course, which creates a, a real like-mindedness, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, some of the things that are um, that, that I've realized are some of the most important tenets of really wanting to bring measurable change, real change. So not just talking about justice, not just praying or reading about justice. We do all those things, but also wanting to usher in real measurable change. What, what are the critical things needed to do that? So number one, community. Um, number two is really um, the, the journey of deconstructing and decolonizing our faith, how we read scripture, who we understand Jesus to be. Um, so in other words, a, a real framework, biblical framework to understand one of the most central themes in the entire Bible, which is that of justice and equity, right? Um, so 
so biblical theology, and then um, understanding some of the history of race. In particular, the, the era of history that I focus on is around um, the era in which the construct of race was created, because it, it didn't exist when the Bible was written, right? Um, so, so that creates another layer of complexity. How do we apply what scripture teaches to the dynamics around race when race didn't exist? Um, so understanding, if we want to understand what we're living in right now, the dynamics we're living in right now, and we actually want to be a part of bringing real change, um, we have to be able to look at now through the lens of why and by whom and when it was actually created. The idea of race is that it's, it's a system of beliefs that were carefully constructed very much on purpose. Yes. Um, and then the last thing is, is around mental health and healing trauma. Um, there's an emphasis on, on um, racial trauma, but really it's, it's trauma in general because all of our own wounds um, are one of the biggest saboteurs for all of us in actually being able to come together to bring change. And when those unresolved wounds get triggered, um, then all bets are off and, and we end up not being able to be nearly as effective um, and oftentimes even taken out of the game. Um, so, so there's a real emphasis around um, not just healing trauma, but, but even healing intergenerational trauma um, as, as a part of wanting to be whole so that we can be more effective in the journey of bringing change. And I can um, speak to that a little bit because I have taken Gigi's course. Um, and even as much as I thought I knew about it, um, it is still, you know, actually being in it is, is a diff different experience. It almost doesn't even sound right to call it a course because it just, the, it really wasn't like a class. Um, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of online classes, so, you know, we're, we're alive, um, it's twice a week, um, and it's a multiracial community um, in which there is total freedom to be yourself and speak the truth, but a lot of, um, a lot of deep dives, um, a lot of times, um, you got half the people in the screen, on, <clears throat> half, the, half the people on screen in tears, um, and so, um, so I guess it is a course, but, um, my experience of it is that it was, um, so much more and it's, you know, for me, it's led to all these, um, other relationships. Gigi and I are in several communities together. So I met her because we were in a writing group together. Um, and then I took her course and, um, I'm also in her book group as is my husband. And like, we live for Thursday. It is. It, and it almost doesn't feel right to call it a book group. I actually wrote a Facebook mm. post about our community. Um, there are people in that group who have redone their entire work schedules just to be there on, on Thursday. Um, so I can just vouch for that. I often say, um, so I'm somebody who left church in 2015 and don't know if or when I'm ever going back, um, probably not anytime soon. But um, if church had looked like um, what goes on in these communities, um, I'd probably still be there. Um, and so mm -hmm. I don't say that just about the church I left. I say that about the entirety of my time in church. It has never looked like what we have um, in, in these communities. Um, so she's just uniquely gifted to mm -hmm. do just that, to facilitate 
community. Um, so it's been an awesome thing to witness. Mm, you just gave me goosebumps. Thank you, sister, for that. So one of the things that I don't know as much as I know about you and haven't taken the course, like when you thought, why did you decide to create it in the first place? Like, was there a catalyst? Was there a singular mm. event that said, okay, I'm going to create this course that Olivia says is more than a course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I so appreciate you saying that because um, I haven't come up with a better word. It, it course really doesn't capture it. Um, <laughs> It is so much deeper and more intimate than that, um, but I haven't come up with a better word. So if you can come up with one or any of the audience can, I would love to hear. <laughs> um, so the catalyst to create it, I would say there, there were probably a few intersecting things. One is that um, part of my story is that I, I grew up in East Oakland, right? So, mm -hmm. so diverse neighborhood, but predominantly black. Um, and me as a brown, Latina girl, my dad is a Brazilian immigrant. Um, growing up in that environment, I was very much embraced as one of us, right? Mm -hmm. I, I really was raised by, by the black community more than anywhere else. That's where yeah. I feel more at home than anywhere else. Um, and uh, that is the environment that I grew up in. And then at, um, at 13, my mother and I moved to a neighboring city that was um, about 98% white at the time. Um, and I started high school at the local high school and it was 2000 students. Um, mm. I was one of the only kids of color. Wow. And I learned about three weeks in that it was filled with the KKK because about three or four times a year, we would come to school and there would be KKK spray painted all over the school. Um, and our one black teacher at the school got at least once or twice a year, got death threats via letters slipped under her classroom door. Oh my um, and so um, kind of the extremes of living as a woman of color, right? Very much yeah. identified as other. Um, and then fast forward a bunch of years, once I got through grad school, um, after being in the US, a woman of color activist for 30 years, I relocated to Soweto, South Africa, um, particularly to do work around uh, racial justice, racial healing. And I, mm -hmm. I lived in South Africa's largest township, which is called Soweto. And by definition in South Africa, because of the history of apartheid, townships are exclusively black. They're, mm -hmm. they're full of people that are racialized as black. There's an incredible amount of diversity. Please note yeah. that Westerners, we racialize it, it, people as black, but there are many different cultural um, identities in in that context but anyway racially the entire township five million people black and then there's me and what I didn't know going in is that I would be regarded as totally white mm. I might as well have had blonde hair and blue eyes totally completely white and I mean you have to understand that um this is the motherland right so they don't border Central and South America the way that we do so there isn't a framework to understand Hispanic mm. Latina there isn't really a framework to understand that. So my, my brown skin, um, it doesn't register as that to them. So when mm. I arrived, it was only 14 years post-apartheid. It was 14 years into democracy, which is nothing. You talk about the rawness of the trauma in our community of Soweto. No one had ever, no one in our community had ever had someone that looked like me live in the community ever. Um, and so 
it was quite a crisis for me, the identity part, because I was regarded not just as white, but as among the oppressors, among the people who had per perpetrated mm -hmm. the most horrific, vile brutalities um, in that very community. And so it took me two years to realize that in my mind, every time people would refer to me as umlumu, which is Zulu, it means white person, I would say, no, no, actually, I'm not white. Like my dad's from Brazil and I grew up here and blah, 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 blah. So when in South Africa, when someone perceives you to be white, there's this whole long list of what comes along with that, right? That there's wealth, there's growing up with many, um, what we would call maids, but there we call them domestic workers or servants really is what they are. Um, and there's all these assumptions that come with it. And so I would be like thinking that I'm building rapport, thinking that I'm building a bridge, hoping them to help them see that there's a little bit more common ground than they might think. I would explain, no, I'm actually, I've never been white ever. I'm in where I'm from, I'm this, and, and I would explain. And what I would get without fail is kind of this head cocked a little to the side with, with a smile and kind of a chuckle every time, sometimes mm -hmm. a laugh and a chuckle because it was absolute absurd. In their context, it was, it was absurdity. And so in my mind, I was thinking I was building trust and building rapport. And it took me two years to realize that I was doing just the opposite. I was actually sabotaging um, any chance at building trust and building rapport. Because essentially what I was saying is, no, no, you're gonna see me how I see me. I'm gonna make sure that you see me through the lens that I see me and my country sees me. So I'm discounting your lived experience, the history of your nation. Mm -hmm. And I need you to know that I'm not like all those other white people. <laughs> and when I realized after two years that I was doing that, I promise you, I nearly fell over because all those years in the US that I had coached white communities and white folks, what not to do. I was doing them. I was doing them because I didn't see myself as white. But by me trying to convince, I was taking up all the space in the conversation, trying to get them to see me the way I need you to see me so that you can trust me. And it did exactly the opposite. It sabotaged relationships. It sabotaged trust. Um, and after after two years, this is a long answer to a short question, Olivia. Fine. After, Fine. after two years, I had an encounter with, with God, really with Jesus, like face on the floor weeping because I am such a deeply relational person, Brazilian down to the marrow in my bones. And, and I couldn't, I, I was struggling to connect and build relationships past a superficial level. And I was weeping, literally face down on the floor, weeping and eventually opened my Bible and started reading Isaiah 53. And that thing leapt off the page in a way that it never had before. When Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus as being numbered among transgressors. So he was considered something he wasn't. He was considered something he wasn't. And he didn't run around telling people, no, no, actually, I'm not that. <laughs> right? I'm not that. Yeah. Um, he lived out the mission because he saw the bigger picture. He saw the purpose, right? Um, and so I, it was this moment of, so no one that any of us knew had ever done what I was doing. So there wasn't someone to, you know, holler out on the phone and be like, hey, when, when this happened, what did you do? Like, 
if, if you could talk to yourself at the beginning, what would you tell you? Can you please tell me, right? Is there a handbook somewhere? There wasn't any. No one knew anybody who had done what I was doing. And so once I found Jesus in my story, I found Jesus in my story because he was regarded as something he wasn't, right? So in my mind, I, I'm taking on, I, I was taking on the burden of a history that I wasn't even there for, mm-hmm. right? And by, by doing that, um, by doing that, I, I was being numbered as having lived a life that I had never lived ever. Um, and the, the suffering that came along with that, the struggles, the heartache, the heartbreak, the, um, and when I say suffering, I mean, I mean, really like tangible crazy things happened. Mm. Um, but, but something happened in that transaction with Jesus that day when I saw his story in mine and I realized, wait a second, me being considered white is part of the whole point of why I'm here. I just didn't know it ahead of time. It's part of the whole point. I have lived my life as a person of color. So I, I understand that struggle. I understand that pain and I get to take that into the crucible of trying to figure out now, how do I live as a white person? When I was in the U S as a person of color, how did I wish that white folks would engage? How do I wish now I get to embody that Lord help me embody that. And it meant that I went back to diapers. I went back to diapers. And that is exactly what needed to happen. I I realized I never been white a day in my life. So I don't actually know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I'm I'm still learning the culture. I'm still learning the language. So it it humbled me so deeply, which is exactly what needed to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could approach my community as a student, as a learner, as a younger sister, if anything, right? Um, and then the next eight years I spent trying to learn how to live that out. How can I be a a real, a true neighbor? How can I be a sibling in the Lord, a presence in the community that is, um, healing? Um, and then of course, going out to, out of the community into the suburbs and, and preaching fire, (laughs) um, into, into the white communities, um, and being an advocate, right? So no one had ever heard of anyone regarded as white living in a township. Um, so, so those experience, those dichotomy, dichotomous experiences of living 30 years as a woman of color to the point of being targeted by KKK. Mm. And then mm. on, on the flip side, living in one of the most incredible and struggling black communities, um, perhaps in the world, um, with an incredible legacy, by the way, um, as a white person and, and having to wrestle with how to live that out and having to embrace whiteness and having to embrace, right? So, so one of the most challenging things that we so often see with, in the white community trying, as, the, as people in the white communities try to engage is this need to prove I'm not like all the other white people. I need you to see I'm not like all. And that pressure means I have to have all the right answers, right? It means I need to say the right thing. I can never say the wrong thing. Um, and that, that's a lack of humility. It's a, it's a lack of humility. And it, 
it sabotages the very thing that you're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I learned that the hard way. That mm-hmm. Living 30 years as a woman of color did not make me exempt. Mm-hmm. It did not make me exempt. I had, I had to live it by making all the mistakes. Um, so when I came back to the US with my, my two little boys, I adopted two, fostered and adopted two little boys while I was in South Africa. Um, and it wasn't my plan to ever return to the US to live, only to visit. Um, mm. And, you know, things, things turned out differently. <laughs> but coming back to the US and being thrust into the Trump administration, Lord, after a decade in Soweto, um, I mean, the, the similarities between apartheid and post-apartheid that I had just come from and what I was seeing in the U.S. were, uh, as we say in South Africa, I was gobsmacked. <laughs> I, could, I, I had a hard time even registering mm. with what I was seeing. Um, and it, it really took a couple, like a, over a year from, from, for us to start to find our feet. And, um, you know, the U.S. felt like a whole different place than what I left in a lot of ways. Um, and it took me a couple of years after that, we've been back for four years now, okay. to realize that um, there are enough people in this nation that no change has to happen. Mm-hmm. There, there is enough of a remnant that change can happen. Yes. Real measurable change toward equity, toward shalom, toward equal exercising of dominion. Yes. and influence and agency, it can happen. The question is, how? 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 And I, just over time, as I reflected on my years in South Africa, um, you know, it took, it took a long time to sort through all of my experiences and for, for, for the lessons to rise to the surface, for me to even be able to articulate. And even now, four years later, I still struggle sometimes. Um, but I began to realize that actually I've lived as two different races of people. And in both as long stretches of my life, right? 30 years and 10 years. And in both of those, um, seeking, doing the work of racial healing and racial justice, which at its foundation requires me to do my own work first and concurrently, me to do my own work, my own self-reflection. Yeah, right? right. Um, I realized that actually there's something to this. And I remember sitting and thinking, I don't know what it is yet, but there's something to this. There's something to this. If we could create something of a model or a template for what do we need to bring the remnant together? I'm not talking about going out, especially as a woman of color, going out and trying to convince folks that we should be seeking justice, those of us who follow Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the remnant of people that know change needs to happen. And some of them might just not know how, but they know change needs to happen. Um, How can we mobilize, heal, educate? How can we get us collectively as a community together moving in the same direction to bring real change? And that's that's how the course began to crystallize. I started to brainstorm, like, what are the aspects of my 25 years of working in um, doing the work internally and externally of racial healing, racial justice, um, seeking, seeking equity, 
living in the U.S., living abroad, what are the critical elements that I feel like are, are the most important for us to come together and bring change? And that's how the course came about. things that is just a common Olivia-ism, if there is such a thing, um, but I'm constantly saying that we all filter life through the lens of our experience. And, um, you know, as much as I know you and I know your story, I, I, I never really thought about that. So you literally, in one lifetime, in one body, got to live these two different existences. And it definitely gives you a unique perspective. I have a, a good friend that I just um, went to visit in Minnesota last month, who wanted to let my husband and I um, borrow their car. She's like, you don't need to do a rental car. You can just, you can just use our car. And so this is Minneapolis, um, George Floyd, Philando <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Castile. And like two weeks beforehand, um, Dante Wright. And, and oh. I just remember texting her going, air freshener. I mean, are, are, are we, are you kidding me right now? I, I yeah. mean, like th that's a really, that's really a thing. That's part of what the issue was. And she's like, I don't have any answers for you. And so um, my husband, who's super optimistic and, you know, I asked him and he said, I just don't feel comfortable and I won't have any peace in their car because we kept envisioning all these scenarios where yeah. we're pulled over mm -hmm. and we've got Georgia license plates and we're yeah. in this brand new 2020 vehicle registered to some white people when they pull it up and yeah. we're trying to explain and all this. Um, and so, you know, I, I told her and at the time she said, okay, well, you know, I, I understand how you could feel that way. And, and she just kind of let it go. So we get to Minnesota um, the first night, um, we went across the street to the Mall of America and within 30 minutes, they think um, my husband's a shoplifter. And so I immediately texted her and said, um, so we just had this whole incident. We have been in the Mall of America for 30 minutes and they already think my husband's a shoplifter. And the ultimate irony of this, it was with his company that he's worked with for like 30 years. So he knows their policies, their procedures, the whole thing. But when she came and picked us, she and her husband came and picked us up the next day, um, we had a conversation. She said, I will be honest, I have never looked at the police as a white woman in a white body, I've never looked at the police and felt anything other than more safe. And she said, and when you first said no, I thought, well, you know, I've got to respect it, but like Olivia, there are friends, like, would that really happen? And she was like, and then yet in 30 minutes. And then I shared with her, every time I see police lights, my heart starts racing. I yeah. have heart palpitations. I immediately start going through all these things. And so we spent a lot of time trying to illuminate to one another, this is what it's like in a black body. This is, and it was a great dialogue, but what you did, you got to live both of them. And so that's, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's what came to me is that, um, I'm so grateful that I have friends with whom I can have these very real and frank and open dialogues. Yeah. But we're still, we can still only give voice to it. Yeah. Um, I still don't know what it's like to be white. I've never experienced that. So to have actually been in a situation where you had to live both existences, that is a truly spectacular um, 
set of experiences. And, you know, like I said, as someone who has been in your course, I definitely see, see the fruit of that borne out. Mm. You know, it's interesting while, while you were just sharing, um, I'm reminded of, and this is part of what I'm studying. So I'm, I'm, I'm a doctoral student at Howard right now. And part of my emphasis is around healing intergenerational collective racial trauma. Um, and what we know, this is scientific fact. This is not conjecture. This is scientific fact. What we know is that trauma is passed down in our physiological bodies from generation to generation to generation until someone does the work or at least starts to do the work to really resolve it, right? Um, but, but that trauma lives in our physical bodies and comes out in our lives, even if it was five generations ago and we don't even know what the trauma was. It's still living from, it is, it's like you can't bury something alive, right? You can't bury something that's still alive um, and expect it to never show its face. A, cel right? a cellular so level. It's very much at a cellular, at a DNA level. And so, so that trauma begins to manifest. Um, and, and the other piece to that is there's also generational resilience that also lives in our physical bodies that manifests itself in our lives, which is a huge reason why some communities still even exist. I would argue in particular, the indigenous and black American, black American communities, the, the two communities in our country that have been intergenerationally enslaved. Um, but that trauma and that resilience, it, both are living in our physical bodies. But here's the thing, we also know that even if you don't, even if you can't pinpoint exactly what the trauma was, it can still be healed. It can still be resolved. And when it is, or, or when you at least begin to really resolve it, your body actually changes, your DNA. It's not that the DNA structure itself is changed by trauma, it's the DNA's ability to express itself is changed mm. by trauma. And when you begin to resolve that trauma, even if it was eight generations ago, your DNA's ability to express itself re is restored. Mm. And then once that happens, it's not passed on to the next generation anymore. Mm. And so in my case, I have, so my mother was born and raised in an Amish community. Yeah. You can believe that. Which means that the majority of her heritage is of German descent, right? Um, which is white. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole history of being oppressors and perpetrators on that side, right? And so then on my resilience side, I've got a whole mix of other things, right? Um, and so I've got in my physical body, I have got both the oppressor and the oppressed in my body. I have got both the perpetrator and the survivor living in my body. And so for the years that I live in the U.S. as a woman of color, that is what comes out most profoundly. And then relocating to South Africa and being viewed as white tapped into a whole different part of what's living in my, my DNA, my, my, in a cellular level. Um, it, it's even hard to articulate what I mean. Um, but this one of the critical pieces around um, the healing work that we all need to be doing ongoingly in order to really be whole and more effective in this work is around shame. 
Um, Ooh, and see this, that. And this is also very, very deeply passed on intergenerationally and transgenerationally. Um, and it's all of us. It's not just people of color. It's also the white community, just for different reasons. Yeah. It's for different yeah. reasons, right? Yeah. So for us, for us people of color, in general, and I would say um, also women of color as well. I would say in particular, um, but but there is a there is a level of shame that we have been socialized to our whole lives since conception to live with and to hold in our bodies. We we have internalized that we are less than. Our voices do not deserve to be heard. Um, we have less capacity. We deserve less, um, less power, less influence, less, less, less. And there is a shame about our identity, a, a, an assault on our dignity. That is a shame that we carry as people of color. And then those of us, and I'm using us, right, in quotes, mm -hmm. us yep. that, are, that are white bodied people, I say us because I've lived as a white bodied person, um, we, we wrestle with shame for different reasons, but it's still there nonetheless, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the shame in the white community is often we come into conversations and we realize that we don't actually see the underside. People stand in our blind spots because yes. we've never lived what it feels like to be a person of color. Yes. And then we feel shame because we don't have all the right answers. Yes. And we don't understand, right? Yes. And on top of that, we have the history of being the perpetrators. We are the ones that benefit from the system. Mm -hmm. So there's shame attached to that. We've used our trauma as a weapon. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you have the dynamics of shame mean that we don't want to be seen, we want to cover. And the ways that we cover and deflect, they sabotage relationships, they break relationships. Um, and once you begin to unearth and, and break up that hardened mass of shame that sits in our guts, all of a sudden there is this incredible, it's almost like a this sounds really strange, but this is what's coming to me. It's almost like a, a metamorphosis where there is a shift from needing to hide and needing to deflect into this softness and openness of actually I can lean into not knowing. I can lean into being corrected and being grateful for the correction. And on the flip side, I can lean into having a voice. I can lean into not enabling and coddling the white folks to make sure they're not uncomfortable so I don't lose relationship. But the shame has to be dealt with. And a lot of that comes with healing, healing our own life trauma and healing intergenerational trauma, which is a huge part of, of, of our community. Can you speak to, so I know you're, I mean, you, you referenced that you're a graduate student. Can you just speak to the specifics of what you're studying? And I don't have to ask why you chose to study yeah. that because you've kind of, <laughs> your yeah. life is why you chose to study that. But I was trying to tell Becca and I was like intergeneration. I, I don't, I can't say it like it is. So can you just. Yeah. I mean, I've never it. knew such a thing existed it, as a field of study. She, yeah. Before she told us, I'd never heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, what it's is the actual um, field. <laughs> it's it's a relatively new-ish. Um, but um, so I'm at Howard University School of Divinity. I'm um, doing a doctorate of ministry. 
And um, just by nature of, of being in the school of divinity means that that theology is a significant part of it, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then my the way that I've designed, um, so you do a dissertation and a project to finish your, your doctorate. Um, and for me, I really don't care about letters behind my name. I, I really, I don't care. I never thought I would go back to school. I never thought I would go back to school. When I realized coming back from South Africa around the same time that I started creating this course, um, I realized we need to come up with, with a model. We need to come up with a model, which is kind of what I'm starting to create in Jesus and Justice, but knowing that to be able to do it with integrity, giving honor to the complexity of what comes along with every angle of this, I still have more work to do. I, I need more mentoring. I need more learning. I need, I need a structure to help me do this. I need, um, I'm not there yet. Mm. And so um, the only reason I would ever have pursued another degree was only for the purpose of how it would benefit the people that I serve, really. It, I, I really don't care about letters behind my name. But being at Howard has been life altering, life alter. HBCU is night and day different than any other kind of institution. It, it, is, it is being in a space where thought from the margins is the mainstream, not my side hustle. For, for those um, in our audience who don't know what HBCU is, can you explain? Just give them a little insight. Yeah, thank you. Um, historically, Black colleges and universities. Um, and Howard is one of those. Um, and so when I realized this is the vision that I have to create a model or a template for how can we actually in community bring real measurable change. Um, and so that is what that is what brought me in. And a central part, based on what I have learned in my lived experience, a central part of that is healing intergenerational collective racial trauma. So the intergenerational part um, is the trauma that's passed down from one generation to the another to, to the to the next, mm -hmm. um, which we just talked about. And then the collective part. Now, this is something that I did not get until I lived in Soweto. I did not get this. Because in Soweto, it's a it's a community of five million people, but it's very very densely populated. So so it's it's actually not that big, but the population is enormous, right? Um, and you have an entire community of people that have been severely oppressed, abused for multiple generations. That that entire community, mm. and so. It took me some years of living there and being immersed in the community to begin to um, to begin to actually feel in my body that there are certain ways that because the trauma was experienced so collectively, there's a common there's a common experience, a common understanding that in some ways it locks the trauma in mm. because people have so many of the exact same woundings. Right. Um, but here's the beauty of of moving towards healing collective trauma is that 
in some ways, being in a community where we've all experienced trauma in, the, in many of the same ways, it can lock it in. But once you begin to walk toward healing, then you heal collectively and you heal each other. And the healing is exponential when you walk it together, which is why in, in Jesus and Justice, I only offer the course in small group form. We heal together as a community because when one person begins to talk about their healing journey, other people in the group are getting set free and are getting um, light bulbs are going on, right? And things yeah, are getting yeah. released inside of them um, yeah. because we're in community. Yeah. So there's a collective aspect um, to to this trauma that is is um, very understated in in a lot of trauma work. There, I have not come across a whole lot written about collective trauma at this point. Mm. Um, and what I experienced in Soweto just was it was so profound of how significant the dynamics are around trauma when it's an entire community that has experienced it, especially intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so at Howard, I'm essentially attempting in the context of Howard community with mentors, trying to create this model for how mm-hmm. can we, the remnant come together, um, predominantly people of color and a remnant of, of white bodied community that already want to be a part of change, already know change needs to happen. And what will that look like? And so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking the restorative justice model okay. and I'm applying it to a collective journey. So the restorative justice model places the victim or the survivor at the center of the process. So this whole, this whole narrative, Christian narrative around reconciliation is a misnomer. I don't, I don't, use that word anymore with regard to race ever. Um, it is, it is weaponry. It is weaponry. It is, it is not healing. Can you it expound is, on that a little bit, Gigi? Like restorative justice versus reconciliation? Yeah, reconciliation. So, so reconciliation is what reconciliation is. Reconcile. It means you're trying to return back to harmony. Something broke. You were in harmony and something broke. With regards to race in this nation and in the, this world, there was never harmony. There was never equity, ever, um, particularly in the United States of America. So the idea of reconciliation at a, at a foundational level is it's false. It's number illogical. one. Yeah. Yes, number one. And number two is that the way that it's used most often in in faith-based circles, particularly Christian circles, is it's used as a way to say, we need to come together from quote unquote, both sides, come together and have this hard, but ending in warm, fuzzy conversation, which if, if we're lucky, it will end in the white person or white people apologizing and asking for forgiveness and waiting and expecting for the people of color to extend forgiveness. Um, and then it, it's two offended parties trying to work out their offense. But that's, that's not reality for race. There is a survivor, a surviving victimized community, and there is a perpetrating community. Yes, yes there is. And so reconciliation does not apply. And furthermore, how can we call, how, how can we bring people together from quote unquote both sides and have this 
little warm, fuzzy dialogue or conversation, and we walk away with hugs, holding hands, you know, singing Kumbaya in tears. And then one walks away to the Chicago projects, and the other walks away to an estate in the suburbs. How can we call that reconciliation? How can we call that anything reflective of Christian? And that, that's, that's where the justice piece is totally absent in most conversations about reconciliation. And I'll, I'll quote Jamar Tisby here. He, um, I once heard him say, um, reconciliation was first a theological word before it was a sociological term. Mm. It was first theological before it was sociological. Um, and when he said that, what I heard, what I walked away and really pondered and um, wrestled through is biblically, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We know that from scripture, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that we have been reconciled to God. But here's the difference. We started in Genesis 1. <laughs> Hello, we started in Genesis 1, which is harmony, shalom, equity. We, we get to, we get entrusted the influence and power of dominion equally. We are in harmony with creation and with each other and with God. That is what we are trying to return to. So we can use reconciliation as a theological term with God and we can use it as a theological term relationally too. If you started out in relationship in harmony and then something broke, yes, you want to reconcile. It does not apply to race. It is, it is bordering on an abusive term, the way that it's used in Christian communities. I so would say it is justice. abusive. Yeah, a yes. I call it a, a verbal bludgeoning tool. Yes. Yes, I agree. And, and there's so much, y'all are getting me on a soapbox now. There, Come on. there is so much around this narrative of, of uh, this narrative of reconciliation that is um, filled with what I call psychological terrorism. Yeah. And when I say psychological terrorism, one of the specific things I'm referring to is this practice of gaslighting. So, so this idea of gaslighting, it's it's a somewhat of a clinical term. Um, it, it was originally named gaslighting because of a really old movie. Um, but, but the term itself is referring to when someone is trying to, usually someone who is in some way a perpetrator is trying to redefine reality for the survivor slash victim. Redefine reality, rewrite history, trying to um, define reality for them. Um, in other words, when, and, and there's so many mirrors to domestic violence here, can I just say, um, but anyhow, when, when, as a person of color, when someone in the white bodied community says to me something like, but you're just playing the race card, right? Or, um, or different commentary around that, that is gaslighting. Or, or when we get called divisive, because we are standing in someone's blind spot, they can't see the damage they're doing because they, they, the white body community experiences society from the top looking down. Yes. Us, people of color, and those on the margins experience society from the bottom looking up. 
which means we're standing in all their blind spots. So what I said about shame earlier, it's this deflecting, it's this need to not take any responsibility. Um, it's this need to never be wrong, to never be vulnerable. Um, and therefore, then me as a quote unquote, a white folk, I need to make sure that you know you are the problem, not me. Because my, my whole identity rests on me having the power and me having the right answers, because that's how I've been socialized to understand my worth. Therefore, I'm going to define reality for you and say reality is actually not what you're saying at all. It's like, it's like when people, when we talk about police brutality and white folks say, but I've never experienced that from a cop. Why did you run? Or why did you even assert yourself? Why did you ask why the officer stopped you? Why would you do that? I've never experienced anything like that from a cop. The problem is you. That my friends is gaslighting and it is, I call so psychological terrorism. And that is what comes along with a lot of conversations around reconciliation. Let me ask you this, Gigi, when, um, when you look at, and this is, this is my, my um, final question. Um, when you look at the all of it, um, I was having a conversation with, well, I had this conversation with probably about five people in the last five days. Um, when you look at the all of it, you can just become overwhelmed or, yeah. or I, I can, uh, because it just, it seems like um, part of the reason I just had to, to just do time out on news and, and all that. It's like, before I can process one murder, there's another murder. We got yes. the, the, the Derek Chauvin trial and I was holding my breath. Um, I wouldn't watch any of the coverage to see what the verdict was. And then we find out, you know, there was the 15 year old, I don't remember her name. I mean, so it's just like you, so when you look at the all of it, the width and the depth and the breadth, and um, I mean, you've seen it up close and personal in two countries, what gives you hope? Mm. What gives mm -hmm. me hope? There's a couple answers to that question. One is, um, There's something about creating culture in a space, creating a culture among a community. Um, and what we often don't realize is that um, culture lives in our bodies. It lives in our bodies. And so what we, when, when what we have experienced a Christian community um, is painful and oppressive and marginalizing, that culture lives in our bodies, right? And then when we began, when we begin to create culture that is embracing, that is grace filled, that is centering marginalized voices um, intentionally, where there is safety, a space that is trauma informed. And you begin to, the more time you spend in that culture, the culture of that community, it soaks in to your body. It literally soaks in and lives in your body. It changes you. It, and this is, this is also science. It rewires your brain. It's called neuroplasticity. It literally rewires your brain. And so in the spaces that I have the privilege of creating culture by facilitating, um, 
what I watch is the beauty and the healing of that culture, which is co-created by all of us. It's not just me, the facilitator. I, I only offer guidance here and there. It's co-created by all of us. I watch it begin to seep into people and I watch light come back to their eyes, life come back to their faces, light come back to their countenance, you know, over time. Um, and what so many times people don't actually even realize what's happening. But this new culture, this new experience of Jesus among community is now living in their bodies, which means that they take it with them every other space that they enter. And when we begin to do that, um, that means we, we, we multiply exponentially because it becomes a living, breathing, dynamic inside of us that we can't help but live out. So that is a, a huge thing that gives me hope, um, is I watch that unfold. And yes, there are times that the work of, of any one person, you know, for me referring to myself, it feels like just a drop in the bucket. Of course, it feels yeah. like that sometimes. Yeah. Um, and if I can change my little corner of influence and the people that are in my little corner of influence go out and change their little corners of influence and then their people in their corners of influence go out and change their, that is how genuine organic movements mm -hmm. or change happen. Mm -hmm. That right there. Mm -hmm. feel like we need to just like say amen and pass the pass the offering plate because right <laughs> right yeah, I mean, it's this 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 whole thing started out is just like um a, a total uh technical nightmare and um and so Gigi has preached to us um one of the things I want to make sure that um you explain is if someone is interested um mm -hmm. in Jesus yes. and justice so you know I don't want to end without you having the opportunity to share um how how the, what the process is if someone is interested in that and then of course your um information on how how we can um how they can find you i know how to find you yes. <laughs> <laughs> um so my website is uh ggonline.org that's g-i-g-i online.org um if you are interested in the course you can either just click on the jesus and justice tab um, or you can go to ggonline.org slash Jesus and Justice course. Um, and that will give you um, a pretty good idea of the course. Um, and it will give you information on, on next steps um, if you're interested. And then I didn't actually mention this, but there I have another organization called Christian Creatives for Justice. Yes, and that's I know about for, that one too. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Gigi. You're, when is the next Jesus and Justice course? Oh, Just so yes. people know. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, so the next group, I, I generally run um, two cohorts at the same time, one during the day and one for the in the evening. Um, so the week of July 5th is what we're aiming for. And um, each of the, the small groups that I walk through the journey, the 10-week journey, um, each small group will always have more um, BIPOC folk 
and fewer white-bodied community, very intentionally. Um, and it, it is part of what creates such a healing, life-changing space for mm -hmm. all of us involved. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm very committed to that demographic. So um, starting July 5th. And How then, often do you do the cohorts? Yeah, so generally they run for 10 weeks. And then, um, and then I spend a month kind of wrapping up the, the last bit of admin for the co cohort and then begin um, bringing in new students for roughly a month, maybe four to five weeks maybe. Okay. And then the next group will start usually, usually within six weeks after the last one ended. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and then you were gonna talk about Christian Creatives for Justice. Yeah, just really briefly, this is an organization um, I started specifically for artists, any kind of artistry that includes writers, i.e. <laughs> Olivia. Ooh, ooh. I was going to say, hope infusion. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so sometimes people don't consider writing artistry, but it absolutely is. It is creating something. Yes. So um, artists of all kinds um, who, who really want to use or want to learn how to use um, their craft for justice. Um, mm. We gather every other week. Um, it's, it's also a really, really special space and it's still a pretty intimate small group. So um, you can find us at christiancreativesforjustice.com. Gotcha. And then um, Facebook and, and not Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Instagram, I'm Jesus and Justice. Facebook, um, I have two pages. One is Gigi Cagnesi and the other one is Jesus and Justice. Thank you so much. Oh, such a joy to be with For you all. Just be, I, I don't even, like, there's not really words, but just thank you. For, thank you for your patience. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. It's been I honestly, the technical difficulties are just a testament to this conversation. So, amen. Mm. Amen. I, I feel like I'm among family. So, thank mm. you for having me. Thank you. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast and we'll see you soon.